This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Thursday Twilight Show with me, Henry Saunson. Very much looking forward to catching up with some of you this afternoon, forward slash this evening, and hopefully not interrupting your Jubilee celebrations too much. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, good evening everybody and um, happy lovely jubilee. Uh, I hope that you're enjoying uh, the first of uh, a four-day weekend um, and uh, hopefully I'm not uh, causing you too much chagrin by appearing live in your ears this evening on a Thursday. Um, looking forward to this evening's show. Um, I'm hoping that we're going to get some input from those of you out there listening with, well, I think it's going to be quite a... Not a controversial topic necessarily, but one that's certainly been causing a little bit of a stir, um, particularly, well, for me, uh, I have a vested interest, uh, and also I think many in the sector. Um, what we're going to be looking at uh, or exploring is some of the information that's recently emerged around the new National Institute of Teaching, or the NIOT, um, issues arising from the results of the first round of accreditation for the initial teacher education market and providers. Um, looking a little bit more closely at indeed the word market and whether or not indeed ITE is a market that needs reform or whether it simply needs a bit of a reset and some further investment and also exploring some of those interesting situations that are being created whereby people are failing in one area but succeeding very highly in another and um, perhaps the right arms and the left arms not necessarily knowing what each other are doing. So um, I will be welcoming people to uh, to pass comment. Please do text in, or if you'd like to uh, you know, discuss live any of the issues per, uh, raised in this evening's little uh, discussion, then please feel free. Now, I thought before we, uh, we kick in too far, I always like to start with a quotation, as you know. Um, this evening, I'm starting with John Locke. Um, from some thoughts concerning education. And Locke said that there are possible scarce two children who can be conducted by exactly the same method. And what I'm trying to do there is to lay the groundwork for this idea that potentially um, the uniqueness of teacher training and indeed the uniqueness of teachers as professionals um, is the reason why teacher education or teacher training um, and I'll come to uh, an excellent uh, text in in just a moment. For me, the uniqueness is the important aspect of our provision, and it's the reason why we do what we do. No individuals are alike. Um, Nuttall would always remind you that you are effectively in a class teaching 25 completely different individuals, each with their own interests, cultures, creeds, beliefs. And we have to train our teachers in such a way as to be able to do that. And I do not necessarily think that teaching by rote through a prescribed set of assumed industry rules is the right way about it. Um, we've had a text in from Paul. Thank you, Paul. Paul says to me, thank you for calling it teacher education. Um, but the DFE are very much making it teacher training, if not teacher instruction. 
And I think Paul is touching on something there that many of us actually have started to debate in different circles with relation to um, the perception of the sector and the potential homogeneity of certain approaches um, arising from recent endeavours and recent innovations. So we'll come on to those in a couple of moments. Now, after the lock, what I thought, because we are Jubilee weekend, um, I just thought I'd spend a few moments uh, looking back at what the world of teacher education, teacher training, teacher instruction, sorry, Paul, looked like in the 1950s. Um, and I sort of went on a little bit of a dig. Um, and I found some uh, uh, from Hansard uh, on the July 3rd of July 1952. So essentially, just shy of 70 years ago, um, the Minister of Education was asked how many places remain vacant in teacher training colleges at their opening in October 1951. And how many are as yet unfilled for October 1952? So looking ahead. And the Minister of Education, there were about 300 places vacant for women students and none for men. And on 1st of July this year, there were 1,065 vacancies for women students and 378 for men. So with three months to go before the start of their course, there were still 1,400 spaces available for teacher trainees. Um, and it got me thinking about the, you know, the world of teacher training. And in fact, has it changed much? What has changed, um, if anything at all? Um, of course, the teacher professional standards as they currently sit oh, were only uh, confirmed in 2012. Um, there was the previous version from 2007, uh, ones that I remember training against. Um, but I thought back and I had a little dig around and a look to see what there was out there. And um, we fall upon the McNair report from 1944. So this is just coming up towards the end of the Second World War, evident that there's going to be a need for some sort of educational reform. And we have the Reform Act um, that comes around. And uh, McNair felt that there was or a need for systematic provision for the recruitment or training of technical teachers. Um, prior to this, um, the, uh, the system was suffering from what was called a, a long-term benign neglect um, so there was a real focus on teacher education 70, 75 years ago. Um, and McNair stated uh, that the good technical teacher is no mere technician. He is also an interpreter of the modern world. And I think that links us rather nicely back to what Locke, I think, was driving at when he's thinking about this idea that we are, in fact, um, completely unique in what we do. Now, the... Um, attempt to sort of clarify the nature of the teacher qualities. There were no such things as teacher professional standards, to my knowledge, back then, um, apart from, you know, the basic necessary qualifications required, which haven't changed much um, in all essence. Um, there were still certain requirements that everybody had to have, um, uh, including that sort of uh, availability of the, the degree level qualification. Um, but uh, the baseline regarding these sort of qualities and orientations was set out in the McNair report in, in 1944. And I'll read you this. It's rather lovely. Happy is the teacher who has a, a general education which fits him to be a teaching member of an educational institution and makes him an acceptable colleague. <laughs> B, a high standard of knowledge of his subject or skill in his craft. C, the ability to teach, dot, dot, dot. And D, an appreciation of the relation of his own subject to other realms of knowledge, the relation of the institution to other educational institutions and to society at large. <clears throat> and then it was built on 
that the technical teacher required a fifth skill, and that was E, an intimate acquaintance with his subject in its industrial or commercial setting. So already there, this needs to ensure that what is actually going to be happening um, <clears throat> is that people are teaching, but also gaining an understanding of the context in which they are teaching. And I think that context word is going to be a key one here, isn't it? It's certainly one that I'm going to use a significant amount when it comes to me getting and not not just a little agitated about the state of play at the moment and the, the situation in which many people, I think, uh, like myself, find themselves. Uh, so I suppose really to, to, to make it very clear and fair to those of you that don't know, I do run a teacher training, teacher education it's not teacher instruction, a teacher education provision. I run a skit um, and I run a skit in a part of the country that is in significant need, um, a part of the country that has been identified as one of these levelling up areas, a part of the country where whereby there is a significant amount of disadvantage, a part of the country that needs teachers that understand that understand its its particular contexts, its particular nuances, its particular working partnerships, networks and relationships. And I, too, am one of the many providers out there who are now having to resubmit for accreditation to be allowed to continue to do what I do from 2024 onwards. And this, for me, is part of a, a wider package of measures that the DfE are exploring. And I'm not sure that I really understand the reason as for why. So let's put um, a little bit of basic on this. Uh, last week, uh, the DfE announced a series of reforms in relation to things such as national professional qualifications, the National Institute of Teaching, the early career framework and appropriate bodies. Um, now, if you're listening with an, uh, uh, an ear of experience, you'll understand what all of those things are. If you're not, and if you're listening back to this or you've tripped upon this and you're interested to know more, then I will do my best to try and flesh out a little bit about what's going on here in our sector at the moment. So first of all, we've got these NPQs, these National Professional Qualifications. Um, and in essence, they are a platter of professional qualifications available to people in the sector with different focuses. So there used to be the NPQ ML, the Middle Leadership and Senior Leadership, the SL. <coughs> These have now been, the, the middle leadership one has been taken and, and broken and split up into different focuses such as leading teacher development, the LTD. And there's certainly a bit of an onus, I think, on providers of initial teacher education and development to ensure that some of their staff, some of their roll call, have a, these particular qualifications under their belt so as to, to fit into the appropriate mould which is being created for them. Um, there are some additional MPQs that were announced last week. So we have the National Professional Qualification for Leading Literacy uh, and the National Professional Qualification for Early Years Leadership. Um, again, there is a, a, a good deal of good intent behind these and their creation, purely because what they're doing is focusing on specific areas of practice. However, having facilitated MPQs myself in different areas, I am often slightly struck by, again, a slightly narrow evidence base. And I think that evidence base is going to be something of interest. Um, and I certainly welcome your views on that. Indeed, just the very phrase evidence base, I think, sends shivers through the hearts of some and cuts to the core of many. So there's those. 
Um, there's some further target support funding for small schools. Um, for every teacher or leader they employ who participates in an MPQ. So it's a little bit of carrot and stick. We want you to do an MPQ, so here's the money if you do it. Okay, be a good boy and eat up your marshmallows. Only one, not both. We have the Early Headship Coaching Offer, the EHCO. Um, so this used to be called the Additional Support Offer. Uh, this extends the eligibility from the first two years in a headship role to the first five years in a headship role. Now, this is an interesting one because what we're getting here is the word coaching coming from the DFE. Um, and perhaps the word coaching is something that a lot of people have seen as... Um, uh, what would it, it's, I suppose a lethal mutation of the word and its intent, certainly when it comes to professional practice and the development thereof. A significant amount, I think, of debate and discussion around what coaching does in fact actually mean um, and whether or not it is indeed being implemented appropriately in settings. Perhaps that's a whole other show right there. Um, and then we come to this elephant in the educational room, the National Institute of Teaching. And the announcement was made last week that the school-led development trust, the SLDT, will establish the new National Institute of Teaching, world-beating apparently, um, which will be England's new flagship teacher and leader development and research provider. Now, that's a big fish to fry in our little chat pot. So what I'll do is I'll come back to it in a moment or two. There have also been some evaluation data released from the early career framework and the DFE have published a summary of the findings from the initial survey um, from the external evaluation of the provider-led ECF-based induction programme. Now, again, in my role as um, assistant head teacher, induction tutor and skit director, I contributed to this. Um, and it's interesting. I'm, I'm not surprised that what I thought and what seems to be the general summary of the initial findings are somewhat at odds. Um, so the evaluation data shows that apparently there are mostly positive perceptions of the early career framework based programmes. There is good awareness, understanding and engagement from ECTs and mentors and positive feedback on training, delivery and quality. Yes, I'm sure there is. Um, but I'm sure there is not as well. Uh, and again, the early career framework is something uh, it's not the hill on which I'll die. Um, I've not decided on which hill I'll die yet. Um, early career framework was certainly in the off, but I think maybe a bit like Sheffield or Rome, there's seven that I could maybe choose from. Um, and then we also have this consultation around the appropriate bodies. Now, um, appropriate bodies, for those of you who don't know, are essentially those um, uh, appointed bodies that ratify uh, teacher qualifications and such things. So, uh, for example, if anyone's doing their ECT year, the appropriate body, they would be registered to, uh, under that and the appropriate body would oversee the development of that. Um, the intent is to reform the uh, uh, appropriate body sector so that teaching school hubs, TSHs. So, again, if you're not familiar, a teaching school hub is this more centralised model whereby a lot of uh, smaller um, and more locally sympathetic and nuanced um, teaching schools were uh, closed, essentially. The status was removed and then they were grouped under these more central hub areas. Um, and very kindly, the DFE are launching a consultation on the time frame for the change of the appropriate body. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not already a fate accompli. So there's a lot going on. 
And this is the real problem for me in terms of the sector, because what's happening is that everybody is being asked to do an awful lot while still coming out, blinking into the sunlit uplands of a theoretically post-pandemic world. I do feel that it seems that the left hand and the right hand are at odds. Uh, we have situations where providers, um, be they higher education institutions um, or be they more school-based programmes, um, are being graded outstanding by Ofsted and then are failing to meet the accreditation requirements for delivering initial teacher training, as it's called, um, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the literature. So essentially, I don't understand why what's happening now doesn't indicate that what will be happening in two years' time is going to still be as good. And for some reason, now we have this point whereby uh, clearly what people are doing now and what they're going to be doing in the future has to be very different. Um, uh, Tanya Oven Hope was quoted uh, quoted in Tez as saying it's quite shocking that the National Institute of Teaching's higher education institution partners have not been successful in phase one of the DfE's new accreditation process to provide ITT. So on the one hand, we have this new flagship world beating. I mean, flag it's interesting. There's been a, a quotation come out about how the, uh, the I think it's a slight um, I'm not sure if I can use this word, but I, I don't mean it in this sense. In, in, in any sense other than what it means. There's been a bastardization of that Joseph Anzuli quote about how a rising tide lifts all ships. And the idea is that the National Institute of Teaching will be this this uh, this tide that lifts these ships, but it also is a, so it's a flagship and a tide, maybe. Um, and Tanya Ovenhoek went on to say that both universities working with um, the National Institute of Teaching, uh, it's Birmingham and I think Nottingham, um, off the top of my head, but I will confirm, are established and Ofsted recognised high quality ITT providers. Therefore, there is clearly dissonance in the process for re-accreditation. Newcastle, not Nottingham. Thank you to my texter. Uh, thank you to Paul from Hull. Um, we don't need to, well, I, I, I know who Paul from Hull is. Um, and for those of you that don't know who Paul from Hull is, some of his questions and some of his points that he may, I think, inevitably raise over the course of the next few minutes will certainly pull you into line as to what Paul thinks. So if we go to the National Institute of Teaching itself, it's interesting, I think, to drink down into a little bit more about what this is all about. We are in this position whereby we have the, I think, an almost deliciously distressing irony of a sector in which we work and ply our trade. I know Paul plies his trade in this sector. I know that I ply my trade in this sector. And I know many, many other people ply their trade in the sector of initial teacher education. And the irony is that what something that wasn't broken has now been force fixed, which is breaking it anyway. So it didn't need fixing because it wasn't broken, but the fixing's been determined. So the therefore something needs to be broken in order to fix it. So we'll break stuff anyway. I just I just don't understand it. And um, Ofsted are now finding forty so nearly fifty percent, forty six percent of inspected ITE providers are less than good. Um, where last round of uh, ITE inspections there were I think two percent like that. Um, only 80 of the 217 applications to deliver uh, initial teacher education from September 24 were accredited. Um, some of those by the skin of their teeth. Um, and the process was a 7,000 word bid against four areas, um, which was then marked using a mark scheme. 
And I'm pretty certain, and I, I don't want this to sound like sour grapes. It isn't sour grapes at all. I appreciate that there's a process. And if I have to, I will pay meat adoration to said process. But I'm, I'm doing it because I have to, not because I want to. Not going to spit it out, not going to swallow it, as my dad used to say about um, cod liver oil. So what we've got is now a situation whereby I submitted a 7,000 word, essentially essay, um, and was informed, like uh, 147, 137 other submissions, that it didn't meet the criteria for the Mark scheme. Um, however, the Mark scheme, again, is a generic set of statements. Um, and there's too much genericism at the moment in the sector, and it, it worries me. It really, really does. Um, I do think, as we look now, we've got applications for ITT for September 22 are likely to be 20% or more down on previous cohorts. They are going to be lower than they were pre-pandemic. Um, now, that is that because people don't want to get into our sector? Is it because our sector is perceived with such negativity because of the homogeneity that's being applied across it? This really big, thick, broad brushstroke approach? Um, I, I, I think we, we're possibly even pushing towards a national professional qualifi qualified teacher status, um, an MPQTS. Uh, and the trouble is with homogeneity and, and generic checklists for things is that people become compliant as opposed to active. Um, people do what they're told. And we know that compliance, especially in education, is very unsound because it lacks its evidence base. It lacks its research, uh, its pedagogical principles. It lacks its educational aims. I'm paraphrasing Robin Alexander there, but um, I think this is really important. Teaching is not a market and we are not grocers. Now, I don't care whether or not I need to be serving my initial teacher education in grams or ounces anymore. I want to be allowed to serve my aspirational teachers with a context-rich, nuanced, sympathetic local platter. Um, if we explore this analogy of the market a little further, perhaps such concepts as the, the core content framework, the early career framework, the National Institute of Teaching, I think perhaps smack of further genericizing as well as hinting perhaps at a, a monopoly. And I don't think monopolies are particularly positive moves for supposedly open marketplaces. So you can, you can sense that I, I do find this a really, really difficult position and I think a lot of providers and leaders of, of programs be they university based or or provider based um, are finding this really difficult to get their head round. Um, Paul raises a good point via the text has indeed the National Institute of Teaching had to accredit I don't know the answer Paul and I'll try and find out and then when it comes to the accreditation who were the markers um, again, a very, very good question. Part of me feels, and through discussion with other providers, that there's a sense of algorithm to it in terms of identifying the appropriately used keywords within responses. But um, I have to say that the Department for Education's uh, reputation with algorithms in recent years has perhaps not been the most positive. So I do hope that it's actual human beings with actual experience of the sector. I'm not 100% sure that it is. And therefore, what we're getting again is context-free checklist approaches, okay? Um, almost uh, instruction-based, if you will, to go back to that word. Um, one of my favourite theorists around education is, is Lee Shulman, and in particular talking about pedagogical content knowledge, which you've heard me mention before. Um, but ostensibly... Uh, what that does to me and what Shulman highlights with PCK is that it's the unique 
province of the teacher. And that word unique, I really do think, has to be at the heart of everything that we look to do. If we remove the opportunity for uniqueness in our sector and we replace it with uniformity, then what we're doing, I think, is really striking at the heart of our vocation. We have to avoid this. So let's think a little bit more about this National Institute of Teaching. And I I want to know more about the Institute before I start to think about supposed, um, you know, what best practice will look like from them or what we feel is is needed or indeed some solutions. So um, at its launch, um, Nadim Zahawi said that excellent teachers need excellent training. Yes. Which is why the National Institute of Teaching is going to be so important. Now, again, we're seeing the word training with teachers here. Okay, it's education. I do think it is initial teacher education. Um, And the Institute, uh, to continue to quote Zahawi, uh, is going to revolutionise the way teachers and school leaders receive training in this country with cutting edge research alongside training delivered by national experts. Who are these national experts? And why do we need to revolutionise the way teachers and school leaders receive training in this country? I would argue that actually the most recent research evidence and policy syntheses and investigations and analysis um, has indicated great practice in teacher development, great practice in teacher education. Um, And again, it's not broken. So I really don't need, I really don't understand why it's trying to be fixed. So let's just think a little bit more about this National Institute of Teaching. What would you want it to do? Okay. It's suggested that if we if we look at who, it, first of all, what it consists of. So um, it will open in September. It will be run by schools for schools. Um, and it will have uh, Melanie Renaldon as the founding CEO. Uh, she's currently executive director at Star Academies, one of the four founding trusts. So the others are Harris Federation, Outward Grange Academies Trust and Oasis Community Learning. Um, now, the idea behind the Institute or what they say they're going to do is they're going to link data on teacher and leader development with data sets on pupils achievement to see what truly makes an impact on children's outcomes. Now, I'm pretty sure that people have probably been doing that for a little while. And I think you will probably find a lot of very sort of ethical and morally driven teacher developers are actually probably thinking about student outcomes when they design programs for improving teacher quality. So I'm not necessarily sure that it becomes sort of world beating and revolutionary in that regard. Um, And this consortium is apparently perfectly equipped, and I'm quoting uh, from Renaldon here, perfectly equipped to translate evidence on best practice into action that can be implemented in schools up and down the country. Okay, now this country is a big country uh, and this country has a lot of little pockets um, and it has a lot of areas where one thing works, where it wouldn't work in another area. And a little bit like a school, let's say, whereby, you know, what works for one child perhaps doesn't necessarily work for another. One size fits few, as Ahanian said back 23 years ago now or something like that. Now. This research will be free to all teacher training providers. Great, those that are left. Um, So 
the National Institute of Teaching will deliver initial teacher training, they're calling it, uh, early career framework for new teachers and MPQs, as well as National Leader of Education Training, NLE, yet another acronym. I'm an SLE, very proudly. Um, I don't think I quite got the uh, the chutzpah for an NLE qualification. Um, and so the uh, there was a, a, a dispute, a contract dispute um, with Ambition Institute uh, and there was a, a, a payoff with regards to that. But, you know, that shows, I think, already a little bit of uh, fragility in the construct. Um, programs have been delayed. So early career framework training won't start until September 23, um, after which that's already two years in. OK, um, so uh, perhaps sort of getting a little bit late to the party there. Um, and the MPQs, the full suite, uh, for the National Institute won't launch until February next year. So that's six months later. Um, and the SLDT will be given uh, degree awarding powers. So it will become the only UK university solely focused, their words, on the development of teachers and school leaders. So there is interesting, isn't it? Because it's going to be an HEI then. And yet I would suggest that HEIs are being squeezed out of this sector at the moment. Um, so again, you know, questions being begged, uh, and 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 dissonance and discord and and a lack of unity in approach. I do think so. Um, there are going to be four regional campuses, each supported by one of the trusts based up in Blackburn, which is a, which is fantastic. Uh, genuinely, it is. Um, there'll be regional associate colleges, twelve of those. And then strong school groups, which have, in their words, the capacity and expertise required to deepen and extend the impact of the National Institute of Teaching. Um, so we've also got 13 specialist partners appointed to extend the reach of the National Institute. Uh, so the chair of the SLDT, Sir Dan Moynihan, uh, who's uh, chief executive of the Harris Schools, um, uh, also is quoted as saying that assembling specialist expertise and collaborating with the sector will be key to the success of the NIOT. Uh, yes, it would. Um, the DFE said this will create more than half of its new jobs in the northwest and northeast and recruit 20% of staff from the least socially mobile areas in the country with an aim to positively impact every teacher in England by 2028, either directly via its training course or through best practice uh, guidance that it will distribute. I don't like the phrase best practice. I'm sorry if I'm being finickety here. Best practice implies that it works all the time, every time. Oh, yeah. When in fact it doesn't, does it? Um, so uh, I think we, we've got to be careful again there. OK, we're going to have to give the National Institute of Teaching a chance, but I'd be really interested to hear more detail about what it is they want to do and by when and whether or not they too indeed, as, as has been suggested by... Um, by our texter that they have had to accredit and meet these requirements. And I'd just love to see what a good answer looks like in regards to that, because it'll make it easier for me to write mine. Um, so uh, Paul, uh, still texting in, tells us that Renaudin's worked for staff for 18 months. Prior to that, had worked for the Teaching School Hubs Council, um, which is a key aspect of the new framework. And before that, Ambition um, as a main provider of ECF and MPQs. A little slight hint of cosiness there, some very comfy cushions. Um, how will the NIOT be a university? What degrees are they awarding? Will they be part of the REF? I am not 100% sure 
um, with regards to that one, Paul. But again, these are really good questions. And if anyone's got the answers to these questions that Paul's raising, then I, I urge them to speak now. So let's consider the, the NIOT in a bit more detail. Um, apparently, it's the most important factor in terms of outcomes for children. Uh, so the NIOT and other trainers have work to do to get the message out that teachers and leaders should prioritise their own development. So these are the words of Renaudin. Well, I, again, I don't think they've got to work that hard. People, uh, teachers with, with, with a hint of uh, um, moral compass, understand that they do indeed need to prioritise their own development if they want to get better. Every moment on development, you want to be of the best quality. So Renaudin goes on by saying that they hope to offer more joined up provision across different levels from initial teacher training to national leaders of education. So this golden thread that currently runs through what initially was going to be just through the ECF and then they remembered that initial teacher education existed um, and reverse engineered a framework for initial teacher education out of the created core content, uh, the early career framework. Um, that's why I think much of ECT feels repetitive because it, it's the same evidence base and it's the same statements. Um, it just doesn't seem to trust that initial teacher education does a good job. And I'll be honest with you, I think initial teacher education does a fantastic job. And if it didn't do a fantastic job, then Ofsted would have determined that a little while ago. So again, no reason for all of this change, in my opinion. Um, however, uh, some have voiced concerns. Uh, so looking at um, Schools Week reported on this. Um, Renaudin has said it should be judged on the success in terms of being a sort of rising tide that lifts all boats in terms of the quality of the system as a whole. So it's going to be a flagship and a tide. OK, um, <laughs> Schrodinger's NIOT. Uh, but there, Renaudin has said there are lots of organisations out there of all different stripes that are making an absolutely vital contribution to this whole agenda. And there's places for all of them. Good. I hope those places are accredited provision. Um, uh, and again, uh, it's infuriating, isn't it? There has been uh, concern voiced about the competitive impact on other providers from the NIOT um, and many people questioning the need for this provision as well. Do we need it? Well, that's the question. What do you think? Do we need a National Institute of Teaching? Um, Renaudin says they're focused on being that rising tide establishing constructive collaboration with organizations across the system there's a couple of dangerous c words constructive and collaboration um there's a wonderful paper by mary kennedy exploring the danger of collaboration um and i i think i've referred to it in a previous show as something that uh, is uh, collaboration is a myth glimpsed in the aftermath of successful implementation um which is again i think slightly tweaking something that a footballer once said um but Ah, and uh, we're told that Renaudin is also a former trustee of Teach First. So there is quite a, a tangled web being woven there, is there not? Um, the Institute is here now. Uh, how can we work with it in such a way that it helps really deliver for schools and teachers and leaders? That's what's, Ren what, what's driving Renaudin. Um, and how schools can start to tap into the work. Uh, the next big focus for the NIOT is a communication drive. Um, a bit like a whist drive, um, answering questions like, what is the Institute? What's it going to do for me? And how can I engage? So we're finding all that out afterwards. We'll find out what it is 
what it's going to do and how it works after it's been um, established and not before. Whereas my provision and 137 other provisions need to inform on paper what they are, what they're going to do and how it engages prior to being allowed to do it. Sorry, I'm getting cynical. Um, the partnership, again, will build on and build out the four trusts current training work. So the four existing trusts um, that cr uh, form the NIO, uh, NIOT will essentially take their models and, and pass them on to therefore widen coverage of regions, phases and specialisms. There'll be four regional campuses, each one supported by one of the trusts. They will receive the power to award degrees. Um, but Paul, as we said, I don't know what degrees they will be awarding. Um, and uh, it will focus solely on teacher and school leader development via classroom practice and study. Um, the aim for the, for the government's aim for the institute is to train a thousand trainees a year at full capacity, starting with 500 from September 23. Um, hope to boost both the quality and quantity of training um, and as well to influence wider training reforms. <clears throat> so again, have we got a need for reformation? I'm not necessarily sure that we have, um, but it will influence current wider training reforms by examining and reporting back on best current practice, all of which will be taking place in specific contexts, bear in mind. Okay, what works in a, a small village school with a pan of 120 perhaps doesn't work in a, a city centre school with a pan of 375. But again, um, it will aim to be a magpie. This is their word. In seeking to draw on best practice, not only from what's gone before us in the UK, but also from international evidence. Well, that's what a lot of people do anyway. And the trouble is with magpies is that no one really likes them um, because they just nick stuff. So magpieing practice is really, really poor practice. I'm sorry, it is. When you magpie something, you literally take it and you just place it um, in your own practice without thinking about uh, necessary implementation, without thinking about the outcomes that you're aiming to um, realise. You are literally seeing something shiny and going, I'll have that. And you place it in your lesson plan and you try and do it. And it doesn't work um, because it, it, it lacks uh, an underpinning sense of purpose. It, it lacks it lacks the those three big things from earlier on. It lacks the uh, research evidence, the pedagogical principle and the educational aim. Um, so the trust ministers promise us that the trust will generate and share cutting edge research and insight into best practice to improve the quality of teacher training nationwide. Um, the intention, I'm sure, is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I just don't necessarily feel that we know enough about how it intends to work. It will work closely with the Education Endowment Foundation, and that's fantastic. Um, it will build evidence around the most effective approaches to training. And it will use teaching school hubs to understand and implement best practice so the whole sector can improve together. OK. <laughs> uh, a slightly cynical and, and very accurate comment uh, from uh, our texter, Paul, um, that apparently the NIOT is all a bit like Brexit in that we've been told it's oven ready or it'll be world beating. Um, and at the moment, it appears to be neither. Um, let's hope the NIOT turns out a little bit better than Brexit did. Well, I'm afraid I have to agree with you there on that. So there's some interesting um, FAQs with regards to the National Institute for Teaching and indeed what it will do. Um, so it will work with the Office for Students to gain degree awarding powers 
so that it can independently deliver courses that carry an academic award, for example, a PGCE. Uh, so that will be what it's awarding. There's our answer there, Paul. Um, it will lead the implementation. So found, uh, there's a, a Q&A from um, the DFE in a briefing pack about the NIOT. Uh, and it will uh, question, why are you establishing the NIOT and what role will it play in the system? And this is the answer. It will lead the implementation of the golden thread of professional development. Golden thread. The department's ITT, ECF, MPQ and NLE reforms. Reforms. I didn't think there was anything wrong with them. And we'll have two unique roles in the system. Ah, so they're allowed to be unique, um, but we're not. Um, one, exemplifying delivery of all our teacher development reforms. They expect the NIOT to be unique in having the capacity and remit to be at the cutting edge of delivery, scrutinising and developing the evidence base to identify the very best approaches to delivery. Um, and it will have a dedicated key role in developing and disseminating evidence about delivery of teacher development. We know that developing this evidence base is critical and that this is a current gap in the system. I would go so far as to point out that I don't think it is. Um, I, I don't think there's a gap in the system around an evidence base of teacher development. I, it's something I spend all my time looking at. Um, Courses-wise, it will offer initial teacher training uh, to ensure that new entrants to the profession receive training based on the best available evidence, because, of course, they currently don't, do they? Um, it's all guesswork. That's what we base our programmes on at the moment. Um, the early career framework, uh, with its structured and high-quality two-year induction, the reformed suite of MPQs, and NLEs uh, and will seek to gain degree awarding powers. This means that it will independently deliver courses, for example, the postgraduate certificate in education, it will be able to validate other providers PGCEs as well, Paul. And yes, a PGCE is not a degree, it's a level seven certificate and part of a master's, 60 credits. So perhaps again, left hands not knowing what right hands are up to. Um, so what will it do? This interests me as part of its work on research and best practice. As part of the NIOT's role in supporting other organisations to enhance teacher development delivery, it will contribute to the development of the teacher development evidence base by conducting primary research, building upon synthesising and translating existing evidence, which is already being done, and expertly communicating the practical implications to the sector. Expertly communicating. I shall look forward to that. Um, it will publish further details in due course. Um, if the this question interested me, um, if the NIOT operates in an area where there is existing ITT, ECF or MPQ provision, will it disadvantage current providers by taking potential candidates away? The NIOT is best considered, this is the answer, as a special type of lead provider, and it will have many of the same responsibilities and roles as a current ITT, ECF or MPQ provider, including recruitment. There is a great deal of high quality ITT, ECF and MPQ training offered by a range of providers. The NIOT will build on this. We are clear that we need to maintain a teacher development market with a good range of providers that can meet the local needs of schools, trainees, teachers and ultimately pupils. And that's an interesting one there. Will they be hoist by that particular petard? I wonder. So the National Institute of Teaching. It's a big thing. Do we agree with it? Who knows? Um, now, I suppose this is just one part of a, a, a wider picture of infuriation um, that uh, also sits around this need for accreditation. So anyone currently delivering initial teacher training or anyone that, or education, sorry, anyone that wants to deliver that from September 24 must 
essentially bid to re-accredit. They must either be given accreditation for the first time against the new criteria, or they must indicate through a written response that what they currently do will be adapted sufficiently to meet the quality requirements of the new criteria, which come into play in September 24. Um, and there are, again, a significant amount of issues arising from this, because what's happened is that a lot of providers have gone, yep, we'll, we'll submit. Here are your 7,000 words. Here's my curriculum map. Um, here's my uh, interpretation of the core content framework. Um, can I have a go, please, in September 24? And 137 providers and applicants have been told, no, you can't, not yet. Your bid, your submission doesn't meet sufficient requirements. Um, and uh, and this happens in two rounds. Yes, round one only gets you so far. Uh, there are two stages to the whole process. So once you are, let's say, approved, you're one of the lucky 80 so far out of the 217, you then enter the second phase. And there's a certain amount of me that thinks that what's happening is that there's a, a stamina test here. Um, and we're being asked to show that we do care enough <laughs> to continue to resubmit 7,000 words to an increasingly narrow set of criteria. I don't disapprove of the early career framework. I do not disapprove um, of the core content framework, apart from the fact that, as I said earlier, it was reverse engineered from the ECF. What I do disapprove of is the fact that the evidence base from which those documents are drawn is perceived to be suitable and robust, when I would argue that it is in fact relatively shallow and indeed quite narrow, if things can be both shallow and narrow, um, rather like a sort of um, a burst water main running down a road. Uh, if that's quite shallow and narrow, maybe not a road, maybe a corridor. Maybe there's a tap burst in a washroom at the end of a corridor in a building. Um, and, and that's the sort of thing we've got there, shallow and narrow, with the water running down the corridor. Um, and so I, I just feel as if certain provisions that can offer fantastically high quality initial teacher education from a rich, varied and broad multinational base of evidence are perhaps having to somewhat curtail their own uh, delivery, their, their own ethos, their own vision in order to meet these increasingly stringent requirements of the CCF and ECF, which are all very well in the learn that, so declarative and learn how to procedurals, um, but drawn from this narrow base. And the learn that is a set of statements against each teacher standard. So it's factual stuff. You must learn that this 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 works, apparently. Um, and then learn how to. So this is how you will learn of that. You will learn that and then you'll learn how to do this. And it's prescriptive. The beauty of the teacher standards, as limited as they are, was that they weren't overly prescriptive. They were simply a statement, a set of statements pertaining to professionalism, under which then numerous providers of education for initial teachers could interpret contextually with nuance, with feeling, with flexibility, with responsiveness, and they could draw down on local expertise and they could draw down on partnerships to allow them to offer a unique approach. And when we lose that uniqueness, I think we lose the heart of what it is that we do. Now, um, since the announcement that the accreditation process was going into its second phase and that a, a number of people um, hadn't made it through, there were a lot of a, another frequently asked questions document was um, compiled 
um, and there were some interesting questions that arose. Uh, quite a few about the process itself, but then some about specific parts of the application. Um, uh, that uh, how are you? So this one in question one B part four. How are you going to judge applicants on other evidence beyond that of the core content framework? And the response is question 1B4 focuses on the use of the core content framework evidence base to support trainees to understand. And we were given a section to work on 6.2. It's around assessment. The core content framework is a minimum entitlement and not a full curriculum. And applicants may have other evidence they will draw upon when teaching this concept that they use to create a full curricula. Um, so we have to demonstrate our thinking behind these curriculum choices. There is no list of evidence they're expecting to cite beyond that set out in the CCF. Um, but essentially, the CCF has to be at the heart of it. OK, so unless you use the phrase CCF uh, once every 17 words might be an issue with your application. Um, are they prescribing the curriculum must be designed based on evidence in the MPQLTD? No, is the answer. Um, the quality requirements state the curriculum must designed in light of the best evidence for effective teacher training and development. The MPQ LTD is a good example of the type of evidence based approach providers should use. However, this does not preclude providers from using other evidence as their base if the curriculum as a whole and the evidence informing it is coherent. How can you demonstrate the coherence of a curriculum on paper? Curriculum coherence is both internal and external. Its internal coherence is its design and development and its uh, links across uh, its, its working parts. And its external coherence is its enactment and its implementation. We cannot surely be required to simply prove on paper that our curriculum is coherent. And so again, uh, you can feel, feel my blood boil and my ire rise here. Um, Courses still, we, we have some uh, some interesting <laughs> questions around full teaching timetables. Um, so someone that one of the questions was, what does eight, what does full teaching timetable mean? Um, is it 80 percent of 25 lessons or 80 percent of a standard teacher timetable, which is 80 percent of 22 lessons? Or is it 80 percent of an early career framework timetable, which would be 80 percent of 20, which is 16 lessons? Which of these is what you expect? <laughs> Um, and so the requirement is about ensuring all trainees have six weeks of teaching 80% of a full teaching timetable as it is typically defined by the school where the experience is taking place. Okay, so it's 80% of a full, so 18 lessons. Um, providers can configure this as they wish. Minimum time requirements apply to course design. There's a lot of semantic questions around what we mean by lead mentors and mentor leadership teams. Which is it is the question in the FAQs, which is absolutely fantastic. Um, uh, as set out in the response, we agree the functions of lead mentors can be carried out by individuals or spread across teams of people. That will be determined by the individual accredited provider. So once you're accredited, you can determine whether or not you're going to use that term. Um, uh, there's some interesting uh, questions around the, the required time. If anyone works in a school, they'll probably realise that actually giving up time to mentor in the new early career framework reforms, it takes an awful lot of your curriculum out of you. 
Um, and so the 1.5 hours a week of mentoring support can be delivered by multiple people um, um, or one person with multiple personalities, perhaps. Uh, and then do schools that work with more than one provider have to release staff for more hours of training? This is a very good question because I've, I'm in a position as an induction tutor where if I've got train, if I've got a mentor working for three three mentors, each working for a different provider, because we're drawing in from the appropriate local expertise, um, essentially I've got to then um, you know have to release three different sets of staff for three different twenty hour chunks of training. Um, and so the provider, according to the answer, must design detailed, high quality mentor and lead mentor training in line with the minimum time requirements. Um, but they would expect people to work together. Um, so it's it's quite interesting. Can MPQ, ECF or previous training count towards mentor training hours? Basically, no. Uh, uh, expecting the additional mentor face to face time to be funded. ITT course is already running at a loss and we can't afford it. They've reduced the allocation of mentoring from two hours a week to 1.5. Um, but they're going to commit 15 million to cover cost of school-based mentors. Um, this is a very good question. The mentoring is likely to be a challenge in the short to medium term. Schools find it hard to release staff for both ECF and ITT. They do. It's really difficult. Um, could we simply use the same mentor for both? And would this reduce the amount of training required? <laughs> Which is an absolutely great question. Um, However, they say some schools, the answer is essentially mentors would still need to be trained in both ITT and ECF roles. Um, so, again, this sort of assumption that actually uh, th there's a difference between um, the, IC the, the, the core content framework and the early career framework. There isn't. It's the same thing. It's the same evidence base. There's really very little different. And if you're using the same evidence base, you're just going to create a repetitive and unchallenging curriculum. Um, Paul reminds us or says that this reminds him of the guidance for the SSP schemes. You can use ones that are not recommended by the DFE, but you had to prove it was better. Yes, of course. It's, it's this, in, in essence, you know, Hobson's choice, isn't it? Three card trick, but you'll take this card. Um, hello to Mavis, who's listening from Asante Mampong. Great. Uh, welcome. Really lovely to uh, to have you joining us this evening. This is a great question. And apologies if uh, I find this a hilarious question, but um, others may not. Um, is there is a mentor leadership team? Does each member do 30 hours training per person or can 30 hours be distributed amongst the team? Great question. So let's have a mentor leadership team of 30 and they do one hour each. Um, <laughs> but sadly, no, uh, each member will need to meet the minimum training requirements. Um, and uh, funding of up to £7,135 per lead mentor will be available, um, which is good. Uh, where or how one gets hold of that, I don't know. Presumably, once one has jumped through the various accreditation hoops. Um, thankfully, the entire mentor training programme does not have to be completed before mentors begin working with trainees. Um, so there's an awful lot out there. There's a lot of questions about this intensive training and practice. So how is the intensive training and practice um, element different to a normal placement? How do we make it distinct? Well, um, through this element, this is a great answer. Expert practice is demonstrated to trainees who should be supported to understand exactly what it is that makes this practice effective and to think about how it could be embedded in their own teaching. 
which I'm pretty sure is what teacher education is about anyway. But I noticed a shift from expert to effective in defining the practice in the heart of one sentence. Um, and I would argue, as I have done in previous shows, in fact, my F words show where we talked about effectiveness and efficiency, that expertise um, is, is a part of effectiveness um, and effectiveness is a part of expertise. But the two are not unlinked. Um, they are, uh, I think, you know, one begets the other on quite a regular basis. Uh, the quality requirements, again, intensive training, salaried work. It's not a school placement, though, and therefore does not have to all take place in a school. Um, so how one demonstrates expert practice who then are supported uh, and then support them to understand what that makes their practice effective and in their own teaching. But you don't do it in a school. That's uh, again, I'm confused. Um, can we divide it up? Yes, of course you can. Should it include observations? Yes. Uh, and, and a range of, uh, of different questions. This is a really great, great question here. Um, question 5.2. Okay. Aren't these reforms re impossible for small skits to deliver? Question mark. And their answer, the government response is clear that to create an ITT system of the highest quality possible, all ITT courses should meet the quality requirements and our accreditation process will ensure that all partnerships, regardless of size, type and structure, are able to do so. If an organisation is not able to achieve the required standard alone, it should look to join another existing ITT partnership or come together with other organisations to form a new larger partnership um, uh, to create the capacity to do so. Most ITT providers are already in composite structures of schools, trusts, HEIs or school-centred initial training uh, and the government envisages such partnerships will continue in the future. Um, again, it just shows, doesn't it? I really do think this is going to be terribly, terribly hard work for a number of people uh, to get through um, and, and to really try and get it right. And, and I do worry that we are really damaging a sector that didn't need, uh, we as I said at the, at the outset of the show, the sector's being damaged in order to fix it in line with a perceived vision of excellence, but it wasn't damaged before we started. So what's happening is that good provision is being smashed apart and dragged through various administrative mires in order to remould it in the shape of those that deem their evidence base to be the most appropriate. Um, and I, I really do think that it's going to cause a significant amount of homogeneity, which is not a good thing in education. It's going to cause um, an awful lot of fallback to generic broad strokes Every teacher is suddenly going to be taught to teach in exactly the same way. They are going to be told what teaching is, not encouraged to explore a professional identity of their own. Their autonomy will be diminished by the range of experience they can draw upon and the, the shallow nature of the pedagogical research that they've been able to undertake because it's all been stipulated to them. And we might even get to this point where initial teacher education becomes didactic. Um, to the point of, I think, significant and almost irreparable damage. And our texter Paul says that um, it looks like the entire system um, should be, or they want the entire system to be run by the teaching school hubs, overseen by the Institute of Teaching, and we're going to be in a position of ideology over evidence. And I'm sad to say that I do think, actually, 
Paul is probably right. And that, that, that makes me well up a little bit inside. Um, so Nick Brook uh, of the NAHT said that with this market review, the devil will be in the detail. Um, and he went on to say that it's critical any changes to teacher training improve stability and increase the supply of well-trained teachers in the subjects and areas of the country that need them most. Subjects and areas are very context-specific, aren't they? Um, you know, a pedagogy for a mathematician is not the same pedagogy as a geographer would use, nor is it the same pedagogy for a early years foundation stage teacher nor is it uh, the same pedagogical approach that a key stage two, year three teacher might employ, nor is it the same that a PE teacher would employ. Um, and I think if we lose sight of the uniqueness of each individual element of the profession and we fall back on a, a checklist approach whereby seminal research papers can be converted into observation tick lists, then we are on a very, very slippery slope, a bit like skiing, we're going downhill fast. So I think what I'm going to do now is bring this first phase of the show to a close. We're going to move into the news. Um, and then after the news, we are going to have our article focus that we do every week. Um, and our focus article this week is uh, uh, an article called The Authentic Teacher or Authentic Teachers, Student Criteria Perceiving Authenticity of Teachers by uh, Pedro de Brucari and Paul Kirshner from 2016. And we're going to look a little bit at authenticity um, because they say in their abstract that authenticity is seen by many as a key for good learning and education. And authenticity yielded um, four criteria uh, that learners use to perceive their teacher's authenticity, uh, expertise, passion, unicity or uniqueness, and distance. And we're going to look at each one of those in turn um, as we go into the second half of the show. So let's go to the news. Thank you to our texters in the first hour. Really appreciated that. If you've got any more views on the uh, sectors uh, and aspects we've covered in the first part there, so that's uh, initial teacher education, uh, re-accreditation and the National Institute of Teaching, then do please text them in. It'd be brilliant to hear from you all. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.witherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development Every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible.
stevewoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1360 pounds in bursary terms and conditions apply find out more at stevewoods.co.uk if you're listening to this then we know we share one thing in common a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves that's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care we need people like you to help us achieve even more with us you'll be given all the resources and support you need offered a clear path to career progression and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. Chancellor and Richmond MP Rishi Sunak is set to pay £63,000 in private school fees for his two daughters next year. The senior boarding school his daughter will attend in September is to see fees increase to £41,250, taking the household education bill to £63,000. Last month, Mr Sunak, who is a millionaire, donated £100,000 to his former boarding school, Winchester College. The money funds bursaries for children whose parents would otherwise not be able to afford to send them to the school, where Mr Sunak was head boy. Winchester College charges £43,335 per year. In Scotland, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is facing pressure to fund universal free school meals for secondary school pupils, as the Bank of England warns that supermarket bills and other household costs will continue to rocket until the end of the year. This will drive thousands of parents and carers below the poverty line. Leslie Davidson, who runs a Loaves and Fishies food bank, has seen unprecedented demand from parents, terrified of having to send children to school on an empty stomach. She said, Providing a meal for all primary and secondary children at school is a no-brainer. It is the most fundamental responsibility of government to make sure children are not going hungry. Scottish Labour MSP Monica Lennon said, no child should be going hungry in a country as rich as ours. Expanding access to universal free school meals will reduce child poverty and stop hunger holding back the next generation. With the cost of living crisis hitting families hard, I am proud to have taken the argument for expanding universal free school meals to the Scottish Parliament. 
because our ambitions for children and young people should not stop at the primary school gates. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, this week I'm going to talk about spreadsheet modelling. Spreadsheets are marmite. You either love them or you hate them. This week, I hope to help you see a reason to include them in your next lesson or even to spice up a form time. What is technology? It's anything that helps us in life. For example, scissors, cutlery, even a paper straw. Let's take a look at the good old paper straw, billed as an environmental hero. It's time for the spreadsheet to model some facts about paper straws. Before I begin, I totally get the paper straws are better for the environment than plastic. This episode's about looking deeper into topics at pace, using the all-powerful spreadsheet to provide high-speed and sometimes complex calculations. With a trusty search engine by my side, here I go into what is the true cost of a paper straw. Okay, the first answer to produce a paper straw costs a penny. Now how about how many paper straws are used in a year? The US use 5 million per day. Europe, a mere 7 million per day. How many trees is that? Right, a typical straw weighs 1.1 grams. So times 7 million is 7,700,000 grams divided by 1,000 is 7,700 kilograms divided by 1,000 again is 7.7 tons. Back to the search engine, it takes 24 trees to make one ton of paper. So 185 trees rounded to the nearest tree. It takes eight trees to provide enough oxygen for one person for a year. So each day we kill enough trees to keep 23 people alive for a year for the sake of a paper straw. Let's take a quick step back. 185 trees per day times 365 days is 67,452 trees per year. That can keep 8,431 people alive. In a densely packed forest, that's around one kilometre square of trees. It takes, on average, 15 years for a tree to grow to be used for paper. People of Europe are spending 27,830,000 per year on paper straws. That's £76,246 a day. If you listen to this on Friday, since Monday, 925 trees have been used for a one-use purpose. Now, with the power of the mighty spreadsheet and a few questions, I'll be leaving that straw behind and drinking from the cup. Do you want to add to my argument or even challenge it? Want to get in touch on the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed? Follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, and welcome back. <clears throat> Apologies for the slight jump there, technically. Uh, just a bit of an issue with a, uh, a sticky clicky button. So we have 20 minutes remaining of the Thursday night twilight show. And I wonder how many of you are heading off out uh, into the, the the crepuscular environs to go and witness the lighting of a beacon in your local area. Um, just down the road from me, there is a, an event going on on our local recreation ground um, with various... Uh, local bands and groups playing on the bandstand which is fantastic and my uh, very own drama society uh, doing a little skit 
um, and apparently some very tempting side stalls, including things like bouncy castles, which is exactly what you want to throw your kid on at quarter past seven after they've had their tea. So um, good luck to anybody who's listening out there or who comes back from one of those, downloads this show and listens to it. Um, I hope that you are having and will indeed continue to have a fantastic extended bank holiday weekend. Um, I know us teachers can sit here safe in the knowledge that, you know, we've been off all week anyway. But in all honesty, um, you know, it's been a hard few weeks. Uh, as you would have heard from the first part of the show, the sector's in a, 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 it's in need of a cuddle. It needs picking up and it needs cuddling and it needs being told that everything's going to be okay. Um, because we are putting ourselves under a significant amount of pressure at the moment. And one thing that I'm going to look at in a future show in the coming weeks is the mental health and well-being of those people that enter our profession and their expectations they have for what it is that actually um, the profession entails. So back to, I suppose we'll call it part two, although in essence it's essentially part three because we're into the last 20 minutes now of the allocated time for the Thursday twilight. Um, And welcome you back with a quotation. I opened with John Locke. I'm going to continue with John Locke. Um, He says, there are a thousand other things that may need consideration, especially if one should take in the various tempers, different inclinations and particular defaults that are to be found in children and prescribe proper remedies. The variety is so great that it would require a volume, nor would that reach it. So Locke there talking about the real challenge that we have in teaching of meeting the individual needs of all of our students all of the time um, across our various and multitudinous settings of enactment um, and putting together curricular models and pedagogical approaches that allow us to try and just improve the the mind of the learner a, a step at a time with an individual approach and to sort of link that back into what we were talking about in the first part of the show, you cannot teach that to somebody with a generic sheet of tick list statements. And you cannot homogenize that to the point of centralized compliance, um, whereby everybody learning to teach essentially undergoes exactly the same curriculum, regardless of how old they are, what their background is, where they are training, where they choose to ply their trade, or indeed the route they wish to take. This is a diverse profession and a diverse vocation that in order to create authentic and effective individuals, needs authentic and effective individualised approaches to their development. And only then, I think, will we reach a point where we are happy with what is going on. Um, It it is all a little bit scary, I have to say. Now, um, I do like to look at an article in the second half of the show, second part of the show, um, just to give a a little bit of a a research evidence flavour to what's been discussed already. Um, And I've chosen for this evening um, uh, an article by Pedro de Bruquere and Paul Kirshner, written in 2016, Um, uh, entitled Authentic Teachers, Student Criteria Perceiving the Authenticity of Teachers. And what um, uh, Brigger and and Kirshner did here was think about the way in which teachers were perceived by learners. Um, And I'll read you their abstract because it's really interesting. They say that authenticity is seen by many as a key for good learning and education. 
There is talk of authentic instruction, authentic learning, authentic problems, authentic assessment, authentic tools, authentic teachers. The problem is that while authenticity is an often used adjective describing all aspects of teaching and learning, the concept itself is not very well researched. This qualitative study examines, based on data collected via interviews and focus groups, which criteria students in secondary education use when determining if their teachers are authentic. Um, and they say that their uh, research yielded four criteria, expertise, passion, unicity and distance. Now, I'm all about uniqueness. I'm all about authenticity and I'm all about expertise. And I'm fascinated by all of these areas when it comes to educational research. I've often found the word passion to be a little bit X factor. Um, you know, some people are, are passionate singers who who are, you know, training uh, to spend their life singing by the side of a swimming pool. But um, authenticity is a really interesting one here. Um, because if you're not authentic, then survival is, is limited, is it not? Um, researchers in education stress the importance of authenticity for optimal learning and, and in teacher training programmes. Um, you, you might hear, and I think I've said this many times to my trainees, you know, you need to be yourself. Um, the, the best place to start your professional development is at, at, at your core values and beliefs, as uh, like Corthagen um Corthagen's onion model of 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 capabilities there with with core values and and your mission your vision um at the center um but just telling somebody to be themselves is exceptionally difficult to do um particularly if they're a, a trainee teacher if i say to write oh, just be yourself they don't know what themselves looks like as a teacher they don't understand that and um i uh, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the work of Furlong and Maynard and their five stages of trainee teacher development or pre-service teacher development, as they call it, um, where you go from this early idealism straight into personal survival. Um, and so you have this early idealistic approach to what you will be as a teacher, often, um, Furlong and Maynard argued, drawn from the way in which you perceived teachers yourself when you were at school. So as a trainee teacher, you adopt the position of the vision of teaching that you thought you best remembered yourself. Um, and that can be very, tr uh, very difficult. I think I remember talking about Dewey a few weeks ago and how the simple act of telling somebody to think is, in, in, in essence, massively complex. So by telling somebody to be yourself, I think potentially um, we are undermining their capacity to present themselves as authentic in the eye of their beholders. Um, so when Brucker uh, uh, and, and Kirshner set about this particular little study, what they thought they, first of all, they created this sort of research question. In essence, um, you know, it is possible that a teacher is being true to himself, but that the students do not perceive it as such. So again, authenticity in the eye of the beholder and the perception of those for whom you are being authentic okay is it possible to tell if someone is being true can you look at someone and determine if they're being authentic are there questions you could ask to determine this and they realize that actually no <laughs> no you can't um so authenticity is a viewed in this article as a black box and so what they do is look at and discuss what makes students perceive teachers as authentic so the focus is on how teachers look to their students and the questions are essentially what's the basis of the perception um, so one's perceptions about something are highly related to your conceptions of that thing. Uh, so 
A teacher's perceived cooperativeness, for example, is influenced by how the student sees or understands the concept of cooperativeness. So there's an alignment there, isn't there? Um, now, what was yielded through the general analysis um, was that there were certain areas that represented authenticity. Um, defining statements that could be seen as criteria used by students when perceiving these teachers to be authentic or not. Um, first up, authenticity is expertise. So um, uh, the teacher, the student acknowledges that they're expected to learn something in class. That's why they're there. The teacher is the expert that brings that about. And that expertise is related to topical knowledge. Um, school is a place to learn and teachers must fulfill that need. Um, you know, education is mandatory, but learning is not, um, which I think, again, is Mary Kennedy. Authenticity. Um, another element is also passion. So being a master of your content is perhaps not enough. You need to present your content in such a way so that your students feel that you're involved with not only the subject, but with them. And that, too, enhances your authenticity. Um, Students immediately apparently see if teachers invest time in their subject. So how the teacher takes the interests and the world of the students into account. Students aren't interested in teaching methods or pedagogical principles. They are there merely for the purpose of learning. They want to learn. And um, essentially, things like teaching methods, pedagogical principles are there because they serve a purpose. And that purpose is to increase the sort of the pleasant nature of a lesson or lead to contents being better understood. Um, teachers who are therefore perceived as passionate also mean students are more motivated, which I thought was really interesting. Um, the third criteria for authenticity is unicity, as they call it, or uniqueness. Every lesson should have its own special character. Preferably where the lesson is more thorough or departs from standards. A unicity leans close to expertise. Um, and it's all about the fact the teacher doesn't feel restrained by the curriculum. So when you're allowed uniqueness, you aren't restrained by these invisible bonds of compliance. Uniqueness shakes off the shackles of compliant bonding, doesn't it? And I think that links quite nicely into the argument I was trying to create in the first hour of the show this evening. Um, that the more we go down a compliance route, the less authentic everybody within that route becomes. And the the whole system is damaged because it becomes flavourless, it becomes dry, and it becomes, it becomes stagnant and it becomes bitter. Um, so I felt that was a really interesting paper. Um, uh, and in particular, when we, we think about those ideas about expertise and authenticity, uh, and, and in particular, uniqueness. And I'm going to just talk about uniqueness. Um, the idea that no two people are the same. Um, if the teacher is true to themselves, um, then that uniqueness described by the people that perceive that authenticity as uniqueness is a more egocentric one. Um, uh, if every student is different, therefore every class group is different, so every teacher should act differently in a different way. Um, so this is not differentiation. Uh, this is essentially that an authentic teacher must break out of the harness of a curriculum and give students and learners a unique and relevant experience. We have a duty as initial teacher educators to give our pre-service teachers a unique and relevant experience.
Um, so we're not saying this is your list of principles to which you must adhere in order to be effective. We are not saying this is the pedagogical style that is best, you must use it. We are opening our students, our trainee teachers eyes to the concept of being critical practitioners and those that are allowed to make informed choices. Um, oh, sweet baby, thank you. Um, sweet baby texted in has absolutely no clue how they landed here in this particular uh, podcast, but teachers have such an important job. Sweet baby, thank you for that. Um, that's something that we do try to, to, uh, to sort of enhance. We're not martyrs and we're not here banging our drum and saying that we, you know, this is this and this is that and we are best and la la la. But what we do try to do on this show is to raise a little bit of the profile of how to develop a good quality teacher and how to develop a unique individual teacher as well. So thank you very much for your message. We really, really appreciate that. And it's great to know that we're reaching people, however accidentally they trip up on our particular show. So that is that particular summary of that particular research article. You know I love a research article. Um, and I think particularly uh, aligned to that discussion that we had above and the interaction with uh, Paul, our texter this evening, um, it really is this desperate need at this point for something somewhere to happen to avoid this this slow march towards homogeneity and generic approaches to teaching. Um, now, ah, thank you. Paul has come back to me with a, a, a comment from the paper that we've just been researching. He says that the comment in the paper, the way a teacher teaches, the effort they put into interest and teach something to us, applies to teacher educators as well as classroom teachers. You can't prescribe that. No, you can't. Paul, you're absolutely right. You cannot simply lay down a didactic set of valued principles or statements that sweep their way across everything that's never going to work and it's going to damage um, our profession, I think, irrevocably. So I'm going to come to the end of our show this evening. Um, I appreciate that there's been a lot of me and not a lot of anybody else, um, but these were important topics that I felt people needed more information on. Apologies if perhaps I've uh, very evidently come down on one side rather than t'other. Um, and I know we need uh, what John Robbins would refer to as Billy Balance. Um, but uh, Billy Balance needs to be provided by the DFE, needs to be provided by the NIOT. And we need clarity, we need openness, and we need a greater understanding of the approach that's being taken if we are to buy into this particular institution. So I'm going to end with a closing quotation. Sorry about the ping just then. Um, and I'm going to go back to my old friend, Paolo Freire, uh, from his magnificent work, Pedagogy of Freedom. Um, and he says, no one can be in the world with the world and with others and maintain a posture of neutrality. I cannot be in the world decontextualized, simply observing life. And I do feel that maybe we're moving towards a decontextualized observational prescriptive set of teacher training thank you very much everybody for listening this evening i will let you go and i will look forward to speaking with you all next thursday on the thursday twilight show you've been listening to teachers talk radio Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time. 
on Teachers Talk Radio.